0: Hello, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of Tea Time with Lindsay. I'm your host, Lindsay, and again, as always, Poe the Passenger, thank you so much for the intro and outro music. It never gets old. Thanks, guys. So, today's guest is actor, director, acting coach, Anthony Mark Barrow. Anthony is just an extraordinary human being who's just, if you watch him direct, if you watch him act, you're just like blown away how incredible he is. So I'm very excited about this interview. Thank you so much Anthony for coming on. You can follow Anthony on social media on Instagram at Anthony Mark Barrow, and you can also follow him on Twitter at Antonius Marcus and all these details will be in the episode description. All right well without further ado here's Anthony. So yeah welcome Anthony Mark Barrow. How you doing?
1: I'm very well, thank you. Uh, Great to be here. Thank you for inviting me in.
0: Absolutely. Looking forward to chatting with you. Yes, absolutely. So I always like to start at the beginning. We Mm. get into obviously the whole, we get into way more stuff later on, but I like to start from the beginning on, on how you personally got into performing and acting and the creative arts, because I find that really fascinating. And I know a lot of people do as well, especially like if people started later or they started in their 40s and they're like, oh, I've just decided to get there. Well, like, I've just got the acting bug. You know, mm. everyone's got their own journey.
1: Yeah,
0: yeah. Um, and everyone's journey is so different. So
1: so I uh, originate from uh, the industrial town of Birmingham, which if no one knows. It's kind of 100 miles mm-hmm. approximately north of London. And I'm an only child. So obviously, yeah. you know, as an only child, you have hours and hours and hours, weeks, months, years, days to kind of occupy yourself and um i remember i think it it kind of started i I imagine i went to a school and i I love school but for the wrong reasons i loved it for seeing my mates and and, and playing around and stuff and i remember in my junior school i was always messing around but i loved that (laughs) and i remember i think i'd gotten to the third year or fourth year of my junior school and i was always, always getting bad reports and then i had this phenomenal teacher called mrs mills who actually died a couple of years ago uh, god rest her soul and i think prior to that year i'd kind of fallen behind in reading because i just wasn't paying attention
2: mm-hmm.
1: and my achilles heel was i love to be outside playing and more importantly i loved football so <laughs> she thought okay so if he likes playing outside and he loves playing football if he doesn't do his work and i take that away from him mm-hmm. that will you know serve as a tool to keep him focused and um, I think in that year I, I progressed academically incredibly and then it coincided with my mom being really hardcore and for this <laughs> summer holiday making me read every day
2: mm-hmm.
1: and then in the following year I, I suddenly had as a seven-year-old the reading uh, capabilities of a 13-year-old oh wow so then I just started to, to devour books and I would read books and my mum would send me to bed and have to come and take the book away from me <laughs> mid, at midnight. I'd be under the covers, But suddenly you're, you're reading all these books and your imagination is being ignited and you're mm-hmm. seeing these, these worlds and, and reading these stories, some of them fantastical. And that kind of sparks an interest in Otherworldly type things, and again, just loving being part of the school nativity. <laughs> you know,
2: yeah.
1: it wasn't necessarily a hugely artistic school, but once a year, I wanted to be one of the three wise kings, uh, <laughs> and I loved that. And you know, any opportunity to, to kind of uh, to perform, and I think even in those formative years, if I'm totally honest, I wanted to be an actor. I didn't know yeah. what that was, but I knew that when I did something and the response I got from my my peers or my classmates or up on stage in a school play, I loved that. Mm -hmm. But I think one of the things, even at that maybe early age, is I had a stutter, which I still do now, actually. And uh, that kind of really kind of, uh, I guess, worked detrimentally to wanting to be a performer, thinking, oh my God, my stutter's going to get in the way. Mm -hmm. Now, sadly, I didn't, come from parents who were enthused by the idea of anything to do with entertainment or or sport. So left secondary school, sorry, left junior school, went to secondary school. At that point, I chose drama. Mm -hmm. Oh, my God. I absolutely (laughs) loved drama. I loved reading plays. I loved the chance that we had each week, every Friday afternoon, after lunch, to uh to explore all these plays that we haven't never done before, doing the improv, and that's when I knew. It. I thought, God, this is what I want to do.
2: Yeah.
1: Uh, again, didn't even know that you could do it as a job. I had no idea about acting, but I knew that this is what I wanted to do. Mm-hmm. Um, so then, I never forget choosing drama as an option, and then eventually, I think in the fifth year, our final year, you had to go and see your careers officer.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> I remember seeing mine. <laughs> right,
1: and walking in there. Uh, telling him what I wanted to do. You can't do that. Yep. <laughs> you to get a job in a factory. That's a sensible option. I said, no, 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 I want to be an actor. But you can't do that. Yep. Why? Look, just get a job in a factory. That's more realistic. And I was devastated. I'm like, here you are. You're a careers advisor. That's the career I want. Why are you not advising me to go down a particular path? Mm-hmm. So, you know, I, at that point, I kind of hated school, wanted to get out of school. Didn't really know what I wanted to do. What I did, but I didn't have... Anyone who was an actor. Yeah. I had no one to turn to, couldn't to speak to my parents about it. So then just left. And I remember going to a local college, doing a B Tech in business and finance. Why I'm the least business minded person I know. <laughs> uh, but actually I did it because my mates were doing it. And I thought, well, yeah. they've left. I want to hang out with my mates.
2: Yeah.
1: hated it. Uh, I think I left after like four or five months and just ended up working in fashion for a while, just working in various clothes shops because I was quite into fashion and, and stuff. But from 16 to kind of 19, I was kind of ambling by. I think my mum and dad were concerned that I didn't have any direction.
2: Yeah.
1: And um, I remember thinking, yeah, I don't know what it is I want to do. I don't know how to be an actor. So I reached a point in my life, I thought, I need to get out of Birmingham. But I didn't know how. I thought, I want to go travelling. But I thought, I'm not the type that's going to trek around Europe with a backpack. (laughs) So I thought, oh, Cruise ships, yeah, they sail the world in relative luxury. Let me do that. (laughs) So I worked on a cruise ship for a while and had just a great experience. But in that time, what I was able to do is get away from familiar surroundings and think, Uh well, what is it that I want to do in terms of see various parts of the world? And I came back and I thought, no, I want to act. So I remember, and this is where fate now kind of kicks in. It was Christmas time, and I opened up the paper. And there was an advert and there was an interview with a local actor who was at Birmingham Theatre School.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And uh, he spoke about the part-time drama training there, what he got from it. And I thought, oh, my God, that's kind of what I want to do. The, next, the very next day, I phoned them up, spoke to the principal, and uh, he invited me down. Sorry, I need to go back a bit. In the, inter- in-, in the interim, I'd actually signed up to a local college and I was doing English and literature and drama I love the English literature, but for the first time, I was doing a drama course outside of school mm-hmm. and it was just what I wanted. And part of that was a trip to the theatre. I had never been to the theatre in my life, ever. Oh, wow. And the first play, play I ever saw was A Doll's House by Ibsen. Mm-hmm. And i never forget this. It's at Birmingham rep and I can't remember who played Nora or Torvald. And I remember sitting kind of three quarters of the way back in a packed theatre and being moved to tears and thinking that... Is where I want to be. I want to yeah. be on Thursday doing this. Yes. Subsequently, it's still one of my favourite plays, and so from that I, I kind of stayed on the course. But it wasn't enough. I wanted more at that point. Mm-hmm. It was a part-time course. We had the Christmas break. Opened the paper. Read the advert that I'd spoken about. Called Birmingham Theatre School and spoke to Chris Rosansky. Shout out to Chris. Uh, still I'm personal friends with, and they were starting in the January. It's a part-time course. So now. I was doing English and literature, drama at this other college, and I got accepted to the open access, then with theatre school, acting foundation course, That's which fantastic. was, I think, yeah. three times a week, Monday, Wednesday, Friday. Links I ended up being there full-time. I love that. Because although it was only part-time, I would just involve myself with every other uh, course that I could. All of the um, plays that they were putting on, I'd volunteer to do costume, lighting, whatever. Mm-hmm. it was where I wanted to be. Even walking into the theatre, it had this smell. And I thought, oh my God, yeah. this is where I'm to be. <laughs> and at this point, my mum and dad still don't know that I'm doing acting. And so we were rehearsing and I was casting my first play. And I remember going home and saying to them, uh, Mum, I'm I'm doing something tonight. Come along to it. And they both came. And they kind of sat in the front of this pub theatre. And I did my thing. It was called Erpingham Camp by... Yes,
0: the, um, oh. Oh, I love that
1: play by oh, Jeff Orton.
0: Yeah,
1: was the very first play that I did. And I think oh, I my goodness! The vicar, I think, it's a bit of a comic role.
2: So and, good. Um,
1: I just took it so seriously and I loved it. And I remember, i never forget this, Lindsay. And it kind of makes me cry when I think about it. On the way home, there was silence in the car. And uh-huh. mum said to me, If I didn't think you couldn't do this, I'd say, Stop, carry on, son. That's all I needed. Mm-hmm. That's all I needed. and oh, from
0: end, That just gave me chills. That just gave me chills. Right?
1: And it, <laughs> that was, okay, you're taking it seriously and you're good. Carry on. Yeah. So that was all I needed just for those two people to believe in me.
2: Yeah.
1: But I, I, I guess I had grown up in their eyes and chosen something and dedicated myself
2: mm-hmm.
1: uh, so they could take me seriously. So as great as Birmingham Theatre School was, I just thought I want to be with the best.
0: Yeah.
1: And I want to go to a London drama school. Mm-hmm. So I applied to all the various different drama schools um and stuff. And uh ended up, to quite a long story short, going to East 15. But I hadn't actually done my due diligence. And as much as I loved it, I didn't realize that it was only partly funded. So I did my first year, but it was like nine and a half thousand pounds that I had to find myself, which yeah. I couldn't so i was writing to loads of actors and to different funds and you know simon callow sponsored me i got part funding from anthony hopkins a few other actors and i managed to scrape together the fees but it's so stressful and i remember finishing my first year and loving it because it's 15's a method school mm-hmm. and i went home for the summer break and i was really missing it and i just finished working with a director called simon vores who is just an amazing director she's, she, she's brilliant. And she called me in the holidays and saying, you know, how are you doing? I says, great, but I'm really concerned. I don't think I'll be able to go back because I can't find another 17,000 pounds over the next two years. It's too stressful.
2: Yeah.
1: I think I'm going to have to leave. And she went, well, try some of the drama schools. I know that Central are still auditioning and rah, rah, rah. So... As she put down the phone, I called up Rada I called up Central. Rada completely put me off. The woman who answered was so rude. Oh, I hate that. I thought, oh my God, I'm not going there. They intimidated me. Mm
2: -hmm. And then I
1: called Central and I said, look, I'm currently on the course at East 15. I can't afford to go back, but I'd like to come and audition. Do you do a straight transfer? And they were like, no, we're a different school, different methodology, but you're quite welcome to come and audition. So literally they called me in within a week and a half. And I remember thinking, okay, what piece am I going to do? And I remember picking Othello. I thought, well, I don't want to do Othello. He's too cliched. I'm going to do Yago. So I went in and did Yago, And they kind of looked at me, it was a panel. And they asked me to step outside. And I stepped outside. And then they said, can you come back in half an hour? Came back. Did it with another uh, student actor who's already there.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: I think that day there's about 40 people there. And they offered me a space on the spot.
0: Stop. Love
1: it. Oh. And when I walked in <laughs> again, I can still smell it and the history of the place.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And at the, at the time, I'm with him, I'm still at i I'm still at least 15. And I remember just being overwhelmed. Jumping back on the train in the holidays, going to East 15 and speaking to the principal at the time, John Baraldi, saying, Look, John, I love this school, but I can't afford to come back. I've auditioned for East 15 uh, for Central and they've offered me a spot. He then starts offering me kind of look, well, you don't have to leave, we can sort it out. But at that point, my mind had already been made up. It was in Central London, it was yeah. one of the big schools. So regretfully, I had to leave East 15 and started at Central. Central's fees at that point. Time were one thousand five hundred per year, as opposed to nine and a half thousand I could manage that lens, even with part-time work with the grants. Mm -hmm. Within one term, I went from paying one and a half to no fees and having grants given to me. Oh my god! So, all that to say, I think you end up where you're meant to go.
2: Yeah, it's
1: so true. I mean, invariably, I ended up doing four years. I did a year of method and a year of classical training. But I would never have traded in my year at East Fifteen, and the three years at Central were the best three years of my life. Um, <laughs> just working with phenomenal educators, great peers, and also gave me access to start going to the theatre
2: mm-hmm.
1: once a week, twice a week. I was at a theatre,
2: yeah,
1: going to the National Theatre and thinking that's where I want to work. So that's kind of where it all started for me, really. I love um,
0: that. Oh, I just. Yeah. See, just listening to that, first of all, just your parents just getting on board because a lot of people don't have that. Yeah, and
2: that
0: that just gave me chills. But obviously, like I went to Central as well, so I I know I only did a year and a half course there. But I'm just like, ah, yeah. oh. yeah,
1: right. I know
0: I know the smells you're talking about in the theatre. Yeah, love
1: but bear um, in mind, Lins, you know, it's it was I was 25 when I went to Central, 25, yeah. and at that point, I, I I'd gone through life, knowing what I wanted. <laughs> Didn't have any direction. Eventually, traveling, opening my mind, and then starting drama training at 22. By the time I went to Central, I was so focused. Yeah, you know, I'd seen the world. I wasn't there to mess around. I was, I was absolutely focused. And uh, I think for me, it, it was beneficial to go later in life. I'd liked to have had that maturity earlier on, but it wasn't to be. And I went when I was meant to go.
0: Yeah, it's funny because I know Central. The central, there's like two other schools, I think it mm-hmm. might be drama center, but they prefer older students.
2: Yeah.
0: Because um, I know a lot of people go at 18, but the yeah. Jacques Lecoq School in Paris, they don't even take applicants until they're 28 years old. Yeah. Because that was my oh. goal to go there. Right. And then I moved here. But I really wanted to go to that school. Yeah. In Paris. And I was just like, okay, well, I've got loads of years to do that because I can't be like young. I've got to be 28. Yeah. I mean, 28 is so still young, mm-hmm. but yeah. So when, so after Central, yeah. obviously we're going to be skipping a couple of years, but when was it you decided to move to LA and make that leap?
2: leap?
1: Well, again, I was fortunate. I, I even before, because of who Central are, uh, I was signed before I left.
2: Uh-huh.
1: And as the an agent that I was with at the time, I didn't get my first TV job about six weeks before we even graduated. So oh, I was at yes. working. Stop. Uh, yeah, um, it was only three lines.
2: Uh, but matter.
1: it was my first tv gig yeah and, um, I was out working and coming back to school to rehearse stuff and um that, that was my very first job but my very first job on leaving drama school the week after we graduated I did a play in the west end uh called Lady Salsa mm-hmm.
2: so yeah. that's my first gig
1: as a lead in a West End show called yeah. Lady Salsa uh-huh. um so I had to dream start you know I, I was never uh, 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 unemployed actor on leaving drama school i was very fortunate yeah. the week that i finished lady sounds so i think i was doing that for six months i need to go back a bit so deborah warner had come into central at the time and did a talk to students and i remember i didn't know who she was at the time and i just remember being in a room of like 200 students just hanging up on her everywhere and thinking oh my god this woman's amazing and i remember talking to her after And then during the run of Lady Salsa, I got this um, uh, call from Gabby Dawes, who then was assistant casting director at the National. Now, Gabby, again, at Central, I was quite uh, astute. When we did our showcase, I looked at all the people who came to see it. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: Gabby Dawes, I saw her name on there. The next day, I wrote her a letter saying, thank you for coming to see my show. If there's anything I'm ever right for at the National, please bear me in mind. Call me in. No, sent me a thank you card, which is really nice, saying I'll keep an eye out for you. Then, literally, I finished my my first play, and then I got a call from Gabby at the National saying, would you like to come in and have a meeting with me? I was like, oh, my God, oh, my God, oh, my God. So went in, had a meeting with her. And during the meeting, she says, look, we've got a play on here called Jitney. Um, would you like to understudy? And I was like, oh, Yes, 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 yes. Of course I would. So she called my agent at the time and was sorting that contract out. But as I'm working at National, Deborah Warren is walking in stage door. Mm-hmm. I says, uh, Miss Warner, I don't know whether you remember me, but I met you at Central. Blah blah blah. She went, Oh my God, how are you doing? Sit me down. And then I uh, was doing a play called The Power Book with Fiona Shaw and uh, Fiona Shaw and Saffron Burrows at the time. What are you doing, darling? I says I've just finished a play. The week, the next week, I was in a rehearsal room, <laughs> <on the floor laughs> with sitting down on the floor, watching uh, Saf and uh, Fiona Shaw. That was by far one of the greatest experiences of my life. Watching those two, particularly Fiona, who I just admire uh, tremendously, working. And it was a start of a long association with Deborah. I've done quite a few of her plays, but Mm -hmm. it was just, and I remember talking about the National offering me to understudy Jitney. You know, she said to me, and I I kind of love this, and it's not for everyone. She went, darling, understudies only ever wake up to understudy. You're not going to do it. And I thought, wow. Meaning, great, yes, it's a good job, but it's true, as an understudy, I'm waking up in the morning hoping that Lindsay's yeah. going to be sick. Yeah. And if Lindsay's halfway good, she's not going to be sick. And even if she is, she's going to go on. And I held on to that and I've never done understanding, not that it's bad. It just wasn't right for me. And she kind of instilled that sense of, well, who are you? What type of work do you want to do and never be second best? Not that understudy is second best, but for me, it was what I needed to hear.
2: Yeah.
1: So I had that to choose from or three lines in her play i'll take the three lines yeah and again so that was a a, just a great association with working with the likes of her at the national working on the olivier stage which was just incomparable and um that was really where our association started so i ended up doing lots and lots of lots of theater working for cheap by Jar, working at the Barbican, working with deborah uh, you really five...
0: did have the career everybody wants when they just roll out
2: dramas.
1: Yeah, absolutely but then it's <laughs> about sustaining that and
2: yeah.
1: you start to get known by casting directors and directors I got the chance to work with Terry Hands who started the RSC up at Theatre Cluid in Wales, working on One for the Other, Cookies nest. that was a great experience, working in Wales at their National Theatre. And then I, I, I just started to kind of get a bit of TV, I fell in to the BBC casting department and they were calling me in a lot. I was, I was doing bits and pieces for the BBC, never anything substantial. And I kind of remember it was a life lesson, Liz, that I found it a bit easy. Oh, this is great. I'm getting lots of castings. I'm working. The BBC were calling me to do, you know, five lines here, tens line, 10 lines there.
2: Mm-hmm. And
1: I remember it was a, a series called Sea of Souls shooting up in Scotland. And it was really... It would have been my first real breakout in terms of going from the guy who pops up with like 20 lines to it was a guest star. And I remember loving being an actor and my casting was on Monday morning and I was very much loving being a single actor in London, going out partying. (laughs) And I remember getting the sides on a Thursday for the Monday.
2: Yeah.
1: Friday night came, oh, I'll learn them Saturday. Saturday night came, oh, I'm out, I'll learn them tomorrow. Went out Saturday, <laughs> had a huge <laughs> hangover. There. kind of looked at them on the, on the Sunday and went in, I think it was like 10.30 on the Monday morning, and I had the signs in my hand, thinking, yeah, I'm a great cold reader, I'll just read it. And I remember, I can't remember the name of the casting director now, it was years ago, kind of looking at me. She'd called me about two or three times and say, Mom, what's going on with you today? And the lines were all over the place, kept looking down. And uh, my agent at the time called to say, what was happening in the casting today? Because I wasn't on it. I'd taken it for granted. And interestingly enough, a good friend of mine, David Jesse, got that Mm -hmm. role. And he's gone on to do great things. But that's a lesson to anyone, I think, that I would pass on to young actors is never rest on your lulls and never believe your own hype.
2: Yeah.
1: Work. And it, it was such a, a sobering lesson for me and for me Lynn's, i never qu- quite recovered from that in terms of going up the things that i really wanted to go for that i knew i was right whether i'd lost the, the confidence that a director had in me that's not for me to say but looking back so yeah that was a great sliding doors moment in as much as what would have happened had i prepared more as opposed to not but uh for me i just felt but I was in a bit of a wilderness, you know, one of the dangerous things that all actors go through, I think at times is comparing yourselves to your peers, your friends. Yeah. And I started to do that, which I think is incredibly dangerous. And seeing, well, why is that person doing that? That's because mm-hmm. they're meant to, that job is for them. And just becoming increasingly frustrated. So I ended up doing a play called uh, The Wedding Dance, which was produced by Bolting Oxygen and went on a, a nationwide tour and um one of the cast members uh is now my wife but at the time she wasn't my wife and um (laughs) she had just gotten her green card and um you know she was moving out to America and we kind of got together but it made no sense because why would you get together with someone who's leaving the country (laughs) who just got a green card so on my first trip out to LA you know I've never even thought about uh working in America and, I, and my previous agent had mentioned oh well maybe in five years time six years time we'll think about America I was like nah I'm not interested don't want to do tv don't want to do film I would have been quite happy spending all of my working life at the national and the RSC mm-hmm. but then on my first trip to LA never been to LA before I thought oh my god it's a great lifestyle here yeah. it can yeah. be seductive but also my god I can actually work here. I've got a transferable skill, you know. In terms of the job that I do, it's an abundance here. There's a, there's a demand for it. So I applied for the O1 visa, which I got thankfully. Um, but again, I had enough documentation and I've done enough high profile jobs to actually apply for the green card. But you know, in, in terms of talking about visas, lins, I think one of the things that people should do is really research what visa they're eligible for because if you can get a green card straight go away do that as opposed to uh continuously forking out for o ones because some unscrupulous uh lawyers will do that because it's repeat business
2: yeah
1: so i would say research your um immigration lawyer and do your due diligence on your case and what you bring to the table so i got my O1 came out here thankfully uh my wife who's, who's english and also an actress we got married in i think three or four years later i was in receipt of my green card but the transition i think was kind of difficult in as much as i think within the first two years of being here i was going backwards and forwards to work the first time i went back um i think it was for i think it was for cheek by jowl or i went Back to do another Deborah Warner play. The last time I worked with her, mm-hmm. so I was always drawn back to going back to work in the UK. Yeah. But I think, and it's a long time. That's nearly ten years now. I think to ease the transition, I would have and I should have emotionally and cerebly and artistically made the move. So physically, I've made the move, but you know,
2: uh, yeah, my, your whole
1: yeah. My dad, who who's since passed, he was still alive, as as is my mom, And I was, I'm was i very close to him, so I kept going back. That was a pull. Mm-hmm. But I think to give yourself a chance in LA, you have to really make that mental transition, yeah. which took me a few years to make.
0: I, d- I don't think you're alone with that either, because I feel like it took me a while. Mm. I think it maybe took me about a, a couple of years. Just yeah. To really fully. Because my whole goal was to come here. This is so ridiculous but to come here book a couple of co-stars get those credits under my belt and then head back to london right that that was my whole goal
2: yeah
0: and because i never saw myself being here longer than the three-year o1 visa i was on
2: wow okay
0: um but now here i am (laughs) 11 years later
1: and a child and and married um
2: I mean, how, now, so. how,
1: how was that for you? I mean, that clearly wasn't planned. Um, oh, no, not at all. How was that for you? I mean, it, it came out of the blue, clearly.
0: Um, it was so interesting because... So when I first moved over, like I said, I was on my O1 visa. Mm. I got here, people were just like... I had so many British friends who yeah. I met here who were like, the O1's redundant, you can't get hired mm. on by studios, blah, blah, blah. So I spent a lot of time... In classes and just doing student films and just doing as much performing as I could background like whatever I could do yeah to fund myself and stay here
1: yeah
0: then met my husband I think a year and a bit in yeah and then as soon as we had our first date that was it
1: that was it
0: and then because I never wanted to get married right <laughs> um and then I think like a year and a half in we were talking about it and I was like you are not going anywhere I've, like, hit the jackpot. He was, like, human gold, you know? He's, like, a unicorn. Right. Um, and so we ended up getting married, do the whole visa process, the green card, all that stuff.
2: Yeah.
0: And then um, neither of us wanted children because he's 13 years older than I am. Right. So we were on the same page with that.
2: Yeah.
0: And then when I got to, I think, 33 or 34. Yeah. And then... I don't know what happened, mm. but I just felt a massive void was in my life. Wow. And I just, I, th- <laughs> I went to the cinema. I saw the Bridget Jones film, the baby one, the third one. Yeah. I don't, know, I don't even know what it's called, but I was just sitting there watching it. And I cried through the whole thing. Cause I was like, I really want a baby. <laughs> so- <laughs> and so I went home and told my husband, like we had a conversation over like the course of I think two years.
2: Yeah.
0: And then eventually we were just like all right okay well here we go and then as soon as i had um my little babe literally not even a week old i started crying cuz i was so hormonal and then i'm like i want another one. Wow. <laughs> but it's so funny because somebody came onto the show and they said that she was the same way that i was mm. and she, she was just like babies like there's apparently like a mexican saying where they babies come with abundance or like two loaves of bread under their arms yeah and so they just bring abundance with themselves and it's so funny because I feel like I've done more stuff and worked more since having the little man yeah Yeah. than I did before because I feel like before I was so like desperate for stuff and I was forcing stuff to happen and if stuff wasn't happening I would do the whole dreaded comparing myself to people and others and doing exactly what you were saying going down that awful rabbit hole of well why did they book that and I didn't even get seen for it and Mm. all that bullshit and it's just such a awful place to be
1: well isn't it bizarre and I don't know whether it's the same for you because I know that we're both parents that certainly you know I'm seven years in now with my wonderful uh, little boy having a child being a parent certainly for me I can only speak from my perspective absolutely puts this acting thing into perspective
0: oh 100 percent 100 percent
1: and I, I don't mean to be dismissive of this great craft that we're both a part of. And I absolutely care. But in comparison to my son, I don't care. I don't give a shit. Yeah. If I don't book a job, I don't book a job. I don't care because my most important role mm-hmm. is that of a father. Yeah. And I don't know whether it's taken a bit of the the hunger and the edge of me as a performer I don't really mind everything is now into perspective I have to provide for him in terms of spiritually emotionally that's the most important thing not booking a job I'm still auditioning if I book a role great if I don't I'm all right with that too
0: it takes that thirst and desperation away for me personally
1: yeah because
0: now I'm just enjoying everything and now I'm just like so grateful to Hmm. even be seen and if I am like right for the role I'm right for the role if I'm not oh well but it's it's definitely changed because before i was just so like living breathing yeah this is all i was doing was
1: pursuing
0: Mm. acting doing classes going to theater seeing as many films as i could you know what i mean like just immersed in it and then my little monkey comes along and i'm just like can not give a shit if i don't go to the theater and And it's not that i don't give a shit because obviously i still i'm still pursuing it i still absolutely love it it's Absolutely 100% without doubt what I want to be doing. But that desperation for me has completely gone. Absolutely. And like when I did the monologue slam, he was mm. five months old. Mm. And before I would have been like putting so much pressure on myself. Yeah. And I just walked down and was just like, do you know what? Just That's fuck have it. Just have so much fun. Right. I have so much fun. And I literally had the funnest of fun. And do you know what I mean? It's just like, yeah. so it took for me personally, it took a whole bunch of pressure off. Yeah. And I stopped comparing myself to other people because I'm just like, why? What's right. the point? There's no point. I mean, I stopped comparing myself to people a long time before he arrived, but that just kind of put the nail in the coffin for me because I'm just like, Absolutely. no point. And I'm just, I was just like, something switched as well because I was happy before. Mm. But when he arrived, it just felt like all the colors of the ocean and the, the sky this is
1: so
2: cheesy
1: no it's not you know oh, what oh. I say Linz when I'm trying to explain what again for me fa- fatherhood or being a parent is I say if you go back to yourself as a kid waking up on Christmas morning mm-hmm. that's for me what parenting is like and just for anyone who's listening it can be a nightmare. They can be complete arseholes for <laughs> kids. However, <laughs> the grand scheme of things, you know, we have been charged with the responsibility of raising these kids. And to be honest with you, I love watching my son sleep.
0: Oh, it, I do it all the time.
1: It's going it to be a battle day, but then when I look at him, I think, oh my God, I'm excited yeah. for what the next day can be because
2: mm-hmm. every
1: single day they're seeing things for the first time, experiencing things. And actually, do you know what they are? I teach a lot, but I'm always saying to my students, you need to be like a seven-year-old. You need to be like a kid because they are so present. So present, no judgments,
0: no egos.
1: Imagination is at its highest apex ever.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: And I just look at the wonderment and like, he's an avid reader. So he reads something and he loves regurgitating and sharing it with you. I'm like, when we become so jaded that we read things, I'm like, oh, okay, great. I'm like, yeah. we need to be like that again, be excited about discovering things and then sharing it. Mm-hmm. I think it's the greatest gift for us as artists to be around, and certainly for us, not to exclude anyone, being fortunate enough to raise kids because it's such a great lesson for actors, I think.
0: It really, like, I, I mean, like I said, it opens so much just of my brain and my heart, and it's just... It just made me so much happier, which I Mm -hmm. was like, oh, I'm already happy, but it just excels. And then just watching him play, and I had the same conversation with one of my acting coaches because he has two children. And he was just like, you just have to go back to exactly what you were saying, go back to being super childlike Mm
2: -hmm.
0: and just take that ego away. And just because they don't think about stuff, they don't care if it's like, like, they're not judging. I think that's another big thing is like, Children don't judge themselves and what they're doing. No. And so when he came along, I would just say, oh, I've been doing that to myself for so long and I had no idea I was doing it." They
1: question, but they don't judge. Judging is something that they, I Mm -hmm. think, uh, develop from us, from school, from from peers as they get older. But many questions, it's never judgment. Yeah. It's so open to suggestion. Mm Mm-hmm. And that's what I love, you know, as actors, we can be present and be open and just ask a million questions. And it's fine not to know. It's fine not to know.
0: Oh, a hundred percent. Yeah.
1: You know, um, mm-hmm. we're very lucky. I think you and I and many others who are fortunate enough to, to be raising children.
0: Yeah. It's definitely, it's definitely opened my eyes. And I mean, I, it was funny because I saw, so I had a guy on the podcast, ages ago, and cause I was not going to bother like, looking for a manager or like looking for stuff until after the second babe was born. Mm. And I got so inspired by his story that I was just like, you know what? I'm just going to do it now. I know I'm pregnant. I know people probably won't like hire me or whatever, but I ended up booking my first co-star for an HBO show, which I was just like, what? And it's been so bravo, long.
1: Bravo, by the way.
0: Thank you. Um, But again, I went in cause I'm just like, well, pr- I'm pregnant. Not going to get this. You know what I mean? So I went in with that whole, like not, not caring attitude but like just being like well you know and then just recently i just signed with my manager and i'm just like okay it's it's that kind of that energy you put out as well and Mm. like i said it's just not that desperation anymore that i used to that i know i used to have
1: yeah
0: and that whole comparing thing which i think think is yeah i
1: think also as well it's it's the season that we're in, the period of transition that we're in in terms of finally and not before time. You know, maybe 10 years ago that wouldn't have happened. That hello, I'm a pregnant working woman.
2: Mm -hmm. I I would like
1: to work. I'm still able. I have hands, head, feet. I can still work. (laughs) Do you know what I mean? And now with the uh, dramatic change that's happening in Hollywood, why should you not go in for a role when you are pregnant?
0: Yeah, it's so true. And my manager the other day, I was just like, are you going to put me out for stuff? He was like, yeah, of course, I'll just tell them.
1: Until
2: those water question. break, absolutely.
0: Yeah, yeah, and I was like, yeah. okay, thank God, okay, good. Because my old agent was just like, I'm not going to submit you until after. And I'm like,
1: okay. I, mean, so, I can't remember which Hollywood actress it was doing which show, but I remember a few years back when she was pregnant, all the sharks were suddenly there. Hello, I'm still working, I, you know, we can we can make it work, camera angles.
0: Yeah. Well, that's just, yeah, for my shot, it was literally just here. Right. So I'm just like, perfect. You don't even see my belly whatsoever.
2: Right.
0: And even at that time, I had this dowdy, like, 1950s-style dress on. Mm. Then I'm just like, you can't see it anyway, because I have this apron over. Like, I show people people pictures, and they're like, yeah. huh, you don't even look pregnant. I'm like, I oh, know. Yeah. <laughs> So have you found that since having your little man that your community of people has just like, you've kind of, it's not got smaller because it's going to get bigger, obviously.
1: Yeah.
0: But like just the people you used to surround yourself with has changed.
1: Um, <laughs> not really for me because I'm quite a, a hermit anyway. Um, <laughs> and it's interesting. I mean, one of my best friends and certainly a, a friend, but also a mentor of mine who we all know, Jimmy Akinbola. Oh, yeah. If i was ever going to hang out with anyone here, it would be him. He's moved back to England for many more work opportunities. He's always working, he's Jimmy. So oh, he's
0: always I, working. Always yeah.
1: constantly. <laughs> <laughs> I was never a kind of expansive party-goer anyway. You know, I'm, I'm quite boring like that. Um, I hate networking. Uh, I've never been into it. There's nothing wrong with it, but it just doesn't sit right with me.
2: Yeah,
1: I'm of the belief, and this is just for me, my work will network for me in terms of, you know, I can go to a million parties, speak to someone who's drinking who will never remember me the next morning. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I can hand out a million business cards that get left in someone's car or whatever. Uh, so I was never kind of into that kind of networking. So my circle of friends, and being a male as well, um, I tend to gravitate towards the Brits a lot. Yeah. I, I I just tended to find for me that because LA is such a transient place, I found the inhabitants or the people that I met certainly when I moved here to be what we'd call, I guess in LA, flaky. So Linz, if I say, okay, Linz, I'll meet you next Wednesday at 12 (laughs) o'clock. I don't need you texting me at Wednesday at 10.30 saying, are we still meeting? Well, that's what we said last week. And that are we still meeting is are you looking for me to give you a caveat to get out of meeting? Mm-hmm. Because something more important has turned up. And, you know, I tend to find, and maybe I'm generalising that, as Brits, we're absolutely more transparent. And our word tends to be more often than not our bond. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I didn't <laughs> get that back. It wasn't reciprocal. And having lived in London and been around mates who were solid mates, some in, in, some in the industry and some not, Then to come to here and that might be the case, I I found it offensive. So rather than moan about it, (laughs) I'll just just keep my own counsel and I'm all right with that. You know, I love going to the theater, Um, I love watching films. So I would immerse myself in doing that solo and I was all right with that. Yeah. Um, So my circle of friends hasn't really diminished bar one, (laughs) you know. Yeah. uh, The Brits that I know who work over here literally fly in and meet up with them when they're flying for jobs and they fly back out. I'm all right with that. Um, um, and I guess being an only, per- an only child, you learn the art of so, yeah. self-sufficiency anyway.
0: Am I right in thinking that you're dyslexic? Did I
1: see no, that? No, but I do stutter.
0: Okay. I knew no. that was, okay.
1: Not dyslexic, but, um, I stutter and it's been a constant kind of battle. I've kind of somewhat, depending on what day it is, kind of uh, conquered it somewhat over the years. Um, But no, fortunately, I'm not dyslexic, but I I do uh, have a stutter.
0: Maybe that's what I read on one of your, because I remember you were doing like an audio book. Yeah. Okay.
1: It's stuttering because I remember that because last, I got a lot of feedback from that. I was working with a director who I guess in his own right is a good director, but I found him to be a bully. And the way he was speaking to me brought out this thing that had been dormant in me for years because he made me so nervous. And to cut long story short, I'm certainly not going to name. Was in LA or? Yeah. Oh my
0: goodness.
1: Yeah. To cut long story short, I now when I get bookings and I'm very fortunate enough to get regular bookings in the audio world now, I just check that he's not a director. I won't. I refuse to work with him. Um, and my agent knows that and if he's on a job and I never want him to lose work because at one point we were on the same job together and I said look I'll renege this let him have the job I don't want it to be part of it Um, because you know that's just he and I just didn't have the great chemistry and I didn't feel he was a very supportive director and certainly the way that he spoke to me wasn't great and what really highlighted that was the first time he did it I thought oh god it's just me Second time we did it, I, th- I had to say, "Can you stop doing that, please?" And the third time we worked together was on a huge novel for like, I think six days, and the engineer said to me, "I have never heard a director speak to anyone like that." Mm. He says, "I'm, I had to say something to somebody," and I thought, "You know what? Thank God, it wasn't just me being paranoid." Yeah, and I called my agent and said, "Right, never put me down to work with him again, ever."
2: Yeah,
1: if we're on the same job. I just won't do it. So that was it. And it made me just speak about stuttering and, and how many mountains we have to go. And again, I'm very fortunate enough to now be immersed in the audiobook world.
2: Yeah.
1: Um, but it's been a battle. You know, you're, you're thinking, I hope my stutter doesn't start. You know, there's certain trigger words. Yeah. Controlling your breathing. So then for someone... And it was unbeknownst to him, but for someone then to be so uh, challenging and dogmatic and a bit of a bully Mm
2: -hmm. to
1: make me feel so nervous and anxious that it started to come back.
0: It's because I'm dyslexic, and that's been a humongous struggle for me.
1: Right.
0: So I do remember reading your post. Yeah. And I just remember just like relating to it and just being like, yeah. And I also remember watching you in a workshop when you were redirecting people mm. and it, you just took me right back to like my central days and just like I just felt home oh. And I just I just remember like you just did tiny tiny tweaks and I was just like oh I hope every director's like this which obviously they're not because um, obviously you act as well and you direct and you're like yeah. a man of many talents but it was just like so nurturing so just like a breath of fresh air really I-
1: I try to be empowering and I say, I, I, I learned it. I've got to give her credit. Um, not everyone can work with her, but I love her. Uh, Deborah Warner, in terms of whatever you bring in
2: mm-hmm.
1: is what she's going to work with.
2: Yeah,
1: And doesn't necessarily want to change what you do. It's about tweaking. Oh, lens in that moment, can you ex- examine that thing again?
2: Mm-hmm. You know, and,
1: um, but she's a huge advocate of repetition, doing it again and again. I love being able to do things again and again. I'm yeah. not named up, but I'm going to. Uh, I was fortunate enough last year to work with David Fincher.
2: Yeah.
1: If you know his work, you know, he's famously uh, an exponent of a lot of takes. You know, I think his record is, he told us on the first day of rehearsal, 102 takes with Jodie Foster in the house. But for me, he very much works in the theatre realm in as much as it's a rehearsal, it's a rehearsal. And it made sense to me in as much as he he says, so on a film, you've had three or four days to set up. You've got lighting, sound. And for an actor to come in and do two takes and move on makes no sense. Give lighting chance to get it right. Give costume chance to get it right. Give sound chance to get it right. Give the actors chance to get it right. Mm -hmm. So if it takes a hundred takes, that's okay.
0: Yeah. I and like
1: that. I mean, not many directors can work like that because they don't have the license to, mm-hmm. but just that attention to detail, it taught me so much and also patience. patience and I think yeah. a lot of actors take redirection personally. No, it's about what you've got lens. Let's keep examining it. Let's keep excavating it yeah. and having the patience and the wherewithal to sculpt. That is craft. That is the craft. Anyone can go in and just hit a mark and say lines. Great. And I say to my students, I have a child, Linz, who can learn lines. My son, he's seven, he, can, he knows half of the Hamlet to be on up to be speech. Mm-hmm. But does he understand what he's saying? No, he doesn't.
2: Yeah.
1: And I actually did that as an experiment. Because I'm like, I work with so many actors who think that knowing the lines is the job. No, you must understand what you're saying.
2: Yeah. So
1: then when you work with these phenomenal, great directors, and I think that really does separate them from the generic directors, and the, there's, there's lots of those around. Those guys, you see why they are the best at what they do because yeah. they nurture and empower actors. But you do have to come in with having done the work,
0: of course. Yeah, yeah. but then it's also fun because like rehearsing a play is part of the fun of doing the play because you find it. all of these new ways to do it, or oh, you mm-hmm. know, and but like to do a scene a hundred and two times. That's just, because I feel like when you're filming something, when you Mm. only have five takes, you're just like, oh, I wish I could have done that again. Thank you. You know know what I mean? Yeah. And it's just like, but that's what you love to do. So why would you not want to do it as many times as you possibly could?
1: Right. um, On the set that we worked on last year, there was a French actress. And I think it was the longest uh, sequence of takes in the whole Mm. one line. Uh, she had to deliver i think we must have done it at least 40 odd times
2: mm-hmm. at least,
1: maybe 60 and you know what lins uh, i knew he was getting frustrated but you never know you never saw that yeah absolutely can't he'd leave the video village walk all the way back down have a chat with her, walk away back, back up walk back down walk back up even tone love
0: that
1: and I think, had she not gotten what he wanted, he would still be there right now.
2: Yeah.
1: <laughs> and she got frustrated, interesting enough, and I'm like, no. In fact, and the actors were open, because that's we, we just knew that's what Fincher does. Lots of takes, yeah. and we're all with that. But suddenly, when it's on you, you're like, oh, my God. Oh, my God, <laughs> <laughs> oh my God you know? But, um, so... I incorporate that or try to with how I teach, how I direct. Mm-hmm. And yes, actors can get you frustrated, but just holding their hands, nurturing them. And I want to empower them.
0: Yeah, because that's what it's to about. To. Yeah.
1: Absolutely. Mm.
0: Um, so just going back to the audiobook with the stutter, mm. when, like, how, because I'm sure people would want to know, because I'm sure there's so many people out there who have, like, something going on, like yeah. some anxiety, or whatever. How did you overcome that, especially in that moment?
1: I had to breathe. I just had to breathe. And the way I approach audio books, even now, I just finished one last Wednesday.
0: Congratulations.
1: When I get a booking, I'm like, oh my god, oh my god, oh my god. First of all, how many chapters? Uh, <laughs> because you know, it, it's 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 hard, and it's long, and it's it's. Tough on the concentration. It's tough on the voice, and you have to prep. But also, I tend to take literally, Linz one word at a time.
0: Perfect, one one and, and the
1: other. I remember, oh God, I, I kind of messed myself up last Wednesday. I'm on the last chapter, Linz Right. Yeah. Uh-huh. I'm now on the last page. So I know I can see the finish line. Linz, I have never made so many mistakes. Linz, I can see the button of the page. I've done the whole book. Linz, I, I promise you, this is no exaggeration. I think it took me probably about 15 minutes to finish that last page.
0: Oh, wow.
1: Don't ask me why. All the words I knew, they were simple words. My brain had just kind of reached saturation point. Yeah. I just turned off. And it's just literally, I, I forgot to just go back to taking one word at a time. Now, obviously there's tricks with audio You have to read yeah. ahead. But I think I could see the Holy Grail, Lindsay. I was <laughs> going home. I was going yeah. home. You know what I forgot to do, Lindsay? And I just thought about it as I was doing that to you. I forgot to stay present.
0: Yes.
1: I was already at home. I was already sitting at home watching the football. No, 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 no. Yeah. You're just done. Go back to one word at a time, one word at a time. And in terms of how to how I tend to conquer the stutter, I take my time. I have a very specific delivery that works for me. I just am very methodical in my audiobook delivery. And I tend to try to be a bit poetic with my delivery. I try to paint pictures with words. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not one of those audio readers who read quickly. I don't want to. I, for me, I'm giving the words, the gift of words to the mm-hmm. audience and I want to be a painter. There's a blank wall and I'm just painting these pictures and that gives me control as opposed to sometimes you get passages that will run away with you.
2: Yeah.
1: When I allow that to happen, I start to stutter.
0: So interesting.
1: So that's what works for me and Sometimes it can be triggered by meeting someone that makes me feel really, really nervous or makes me feel that I need to be anxious. So then I just have to remind myself to breathe. And also what stutterers do, I'm sure I'm not the only one who does this, grow up and there are certain words that you know are triggers. So what you start to do then, I choose other words. Or I read a lot, so I might normally, under normal, under normal circumstances, have an easy word, but I'll, I'll choose this kind of long syllabled word which sounds harsh, really but it's actually like easy to say. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so you you find coping mechanisms.
0: Yeah, that's what I do with dyslexia, because right. there are some words I can't even pronounce. Right. And I just find a different word. So if I see something in a script that I can't say, I either try and break it down, or if I yeah. know it's going to just trip me up. Because, you know, yeah. when you figure something out, I'm just like, it's still going to trip me up. So fuck it, I'm just going to change it. Right. I'm not changing the meaning of everything or anything. And I'm just like, mm-hmm. if it works, it works. If it doesn't, you know. But,
1: well, for us stutterers, if we learn some text, it's that's all good. Yeah. Very rarely, that doesn't happen, when I learn text, I never stutter. And I don't know why that is. I mean, I've looked in, in terms of my amateur sleuth uh moments i've looked into and read various papers about why people stutter and there's no definitive answer i don't know where it's come from from me my, none of my family do that but it's in me and it's inherent and i'm all right i've embraced it and made the most of it mm-hmm. uh but it's a work in progress Yeah. you know but it's interesting how you found your coping mechanism as well in terms of rotten's right, not doing it <laughs> you know I'm, i get that i get it so, yeah, yeah.
0: Well, it's just, you know, like if I if I can't figure it out, I just have to, like, can figure it out. Mm. I just have to say the word super, super slowly. And yeah. if I do it in an American accent, that's fine because Americans speak very slowly. Yeah. But if it's something that I just know is going to keep tripping me up and I just know like I, all I'm thinking about is that word that's on its way. Yeah. And I'm just like, do you know what? Just take the pressure off. Right. Because I'm like what you were saying about being present. I'm yeah. not being present. Right, And if I'm not being present, I'm not being authentic right. to the work. So I'm just like, okay. So there you go. Well,
1: yeah,
0: Yes. <laughs> Is there anything else you wanted to add? Anything? Any other little tidbits you have? Um, I feel like you've... Yeah.
1: It's a marathon, not a sprint. You know... Yep,
0: say that all the time.
1: I am... Because I'm dealing with actors all the time and I think they are under incredible pressure nowadays with this thing called social media. Yes. You know, to be, to to curate who you are, mm-hmm. to curate the jobs that you run. And I really admire these actors who, and there's a lot of them out there, who are not on social media.
2: I know, I think, yeah.
1: I think this thing steals so much of my time.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So much. And I, I'm trying to use it less. I'm, I'm certainly not on Facebook as much as I used to be. I had um, to delete it. Yeah, I mean... It's great because I'm able to stay in contact with people back at home. I, I It's more of a personal page for me than Instagram is. Instagram for me serves a platform, for me anyway, for fatherhood.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And charting the fact that no, not all dads are dead big dads. Some of us are actually putting in the work and, 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 and trying to raise human beings that are going to make this world better.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, so that's, a, I guess... A personal goal for me that that's about that really and anything else that might i might throw in there but fundamentally the it's about that um but i think anyway tiktok i mean
2: uh,
1: oh. uh facebook, facebook instagram yeah. twitter it's overwhelming and it, it's it's stealing a lot of our time and and so many of these actors now um i'm finding that they want to run before they can walk mm-hmm student actors want to go straight to Hollywood. I'm like, well, you haven't even worked yet. Yeah. But because they're looking at a lot of their role models who are actors. Mm -hmm. And I always say to them, do you think they just got there? There is no quick fix. The actors you think that have just arrived, like best newcomer, best newcomer has probably been doing (laughs) the do for 10 or 15 years, but you have just known about it. The industry Uh, have now recognized their graft. There is no newcomer to this. People have, you know, people like Zendaya,
2: mm-hmm.
1: people think she's just arrived. She's got a full body of work, you know, and I would just say this thing, what you want to achieve,
2: yeah.
1: it's a marathon, not a sprint. And you, I think short-term failure leads to long-term success. I think you've got to fail. You've, you've got to go on a million auditions and tank them. Yeah. You've got to go on auditions and think, oh, I've got to book that and not book it. Mm-hmm. So then what you do, you treat them equally, whether you've done well or not. All right, done. And as you leave, throw your paper in the bin and get on with the rest of your life. Yep. And I think too many actors, and I'm sure I did it when I was earlier, define themselves by being an actor. This in this job that you do should not define you as a human being.
2: Yeah.
1: Because you know what it is, Lind? It's a job at the end of the day. Yeah. And I think
0: that's what motherhood has taught me. It great. is a job. Do you know what I mean?
2: Yeah.
0: Like, not motherhood's a job. I mean, motherhood is a job. That's a job in itself. But yeah. it's, and it's meant to be fun. Like, the mm-hmm. reason we do this is because we love it so much.
1: You know, you know? <laughs> I came up with an analogy the other day, and I, I think it makes sense. I said to one of my students, you know what? Acting's like A lover. It's not a wife, it's a lover. In terms of, you might fall in love with it, but she might not love you back. Or she might get up in the morning and not be there. Do you know what I mean? You, know what I mean? you have a great night. You met her at the bar. You think, oh, God, she's the one. You wake up in the morning, look over, and she's, she's gone. <laughs> you know, she'll play with your emotions. She'll lead you on. So she'll be seductive. She'll make you feel the best thing in the world. And then she'll move <laughs> on to, some, to someone who's hotter. So that's not, that's really good. commit your life to the lover. Have fun with it. You know yeah. what I mean? Yeah. Um, I, I,
2: like I like that, that.
1: I thought, no, you know, that's not your wife. That's just... Oh, you know, my goodness. Um, yeah. but You know, I think we have to just have a, a sense of, of perspective, whether it's yeah. social networking, being a parent, not being a parent, uh, and just being the best human beings we can be. Mm-hmm. You know? And
0: being the best version of ourselves.
1: Exactly. Absolutely. <sighs>
0: Well, Anthony, this was really fantastic. It was very, i say I just enjoy listening to people. So I enjoyed listening to you go back to Central because it took me back to Central. Uh-huh. <laughs> so, yeah, I appreciate everything that you just said because it's inspired me. So, yeah, thank you so much for coming on.
1: Well, Linz, thank you for inviting me. And also thank you for being such an inspiring uh, Rob wonderful. Lots of women out there who might be thinking of, you know, well, can I still be part of the industry having kids? Yes, you damn well can. The fact that you've got up there, you've made a podcast, it's it's reaching a wide demographic. But ultimately, I think, you know, Hollywood has to change. And yeah. it is changing in terms of giving people who haven't been given the opportunity to before to have a voice. And uh, yeah. I love the fact you are a working pregnant mother. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think you've inspired a lot of people by by saying that.
0: Well, it's funny as well because um so before, I feel like one of the reasons why I didn't want to have children was so selfish like for me because I was so like into the whole acting and that's all mm-hmm. I wanted to do. Didn't want to do anything else. Didn't want any like obstructions or like anything in my way, yeah. you know. And now that I have my child and I'm having a second, I also knew a bunch of mothers they were a lot older than me at the time because when I first moved over, I, was, I think I was 27. Yeah. So a lot of them were like in their 40s who I knew. Mm. And I saw them working yeah. with two kids. And one of them was working, all, like she's still a powerhouse. And she's still like consistently working on video games, motion capture, TV yeah. shows. And still to this day, I'm just like, I'm just absolutely in awe of her. Yeah. And there are many women like that that I was yeah. like, well, you know what? If Claudia can do it, I'm sure, I'm sure I can do that too.
1: Exactly. So
0: it was when I, but you know what? We all have to reach that stage by ourselves
1: mm.
0: because I wasn't ready, definitely, at 27. Yeah. But you know, at 34, 35, I was just like, give me the babies, <laughs> <laughs> give me babies.
1: <laughs> so, well, I salute you, and also, you know, whether people know or not. You're also a flipping great script writer as well. And, you know, I was very fortunate enough to work and collaborate with you on a wonderful script. So you're doing stuff, man. I think you're a great trailblazer for women. I think you're a great example of, you know what? I'm going to make it happen. So I salute you.
0: And we're still trying to make that happen, just FYI. That and you will. Yeah, it's going to happen. It's just like, you know, you know what films you're trying to get a film off on its feet is like, I'm sure it's just like, ha <laughs> but yeah but that's why we did the trailer just to like kind of wet our appetites a little bit again and then i'm just like you know what and then i, I entered it into a lab so i turned it into a short film which yeah. i think is the way we're going to do it's like a 37 minute short film yeah yeah Do a long short film but i'm like you yeah. know what we're going to do that and and i also feel like i have a duty to you guys because you gave up your time and that actually and because we're going to use those scenes i'm like why mm. would we reshoot this we have this footage and it's incredible yeah
1: yeah, yeah. so well, yeah. Well thank you.
0: Yeah. <sighs> all right, well thank you again. Thank,
1: thank you, answer. brilliant mother and artist that you are <laughs> Liz, thank you. Have a great rest of Sunday.
0: And thank you, Anthony, again so much for coming onto the show. I will put all your Twitter and Instagrams into the episode description, so go follow Anthony Mark Burroughs, everybody. Until next time. Again, Poe the Passenger, thank you very much. Bye bye.
2: Got a sweet sock.